And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The term great American gets thrown around a lot and often too loosely, but Congressman John Lewis is truly a great American. As a young man, he risked his life to advance the cause of civil rights, and he's raised his thunderous voice again and again against injustice wherever he's seen it. I had the honor of sitting down with Congressman Lewis a while back for my Axe Files TV show, and I thought given the tenor of the times and the issues we're facing, it'd be great to share that with you again. I also want to wish Congressman Lewis, who is battling cancer. All the best. He is in our thoughts and prayers. Congressman John Lewis, so good to be with you, and especially here at the Center for uh, Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, that uh, a museum of history, so much of which you were right in the middle of. We look over here, and here's uh, a mural, a photo of the march from Selma to Montgomery. This happened a few days after you and hundreds of others were savagely beaten uh, and gassed, stomped on by horses, uh, trying to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Tell me how you feel we're doing today. How far down the road have we gotten from that bridge, and are we still moving forward? Well, David, I'm honored. Uh, to be in your presence, to be here with you. Uh, I must tell you, we have come a distance. We've made progress, but there are forces in America trying to slow us down or take us back. And when I think about what happened here in the American South, not just in Selma, but all across the South, in Mississippi, in Georgia, in Tennessee, what people had to go through to pass a so-called literacy test. People were asked to count the number of bubbles on a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans in a jar. There were African-American lawyers and doctors, college professors, high school principals, housewives and farmers were told over and over again that they failed the so-called literacy test. So we had to do what we did. You sit here today as a senior member of Congress, a leader of Congress. You're a major historic uh, figure uh, in this country. Uh, but you started off just wanting to be a preacher. You, you were the, the son of sharecroppers in, in Pike County, Alabama. Uh, what, what, what was it that attracted you to, uh, to preaching? I understand you, your audience was uh, right there in the, in the, in the coop. Well, when I was growing up, I grew up on a farm, 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of a little town called Troy. My father had been a sharecropper, as you stated, a tenant farmer. But in 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four, he had saved $300, and a man sold him 110 acres of land. My family still owned that land today. And it was my responsibility to care for the chickens. And as a little child, I did want to be a minister. So we would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard. And my brothers and sisters and cousins were lined outside of the chicken yard. And I would start speaking or preaching to the chickens. And I said to young people today, some of those chickens that I preached to during the 40s and the 50s tended to listen to me much better (laughs) than some of my colleagues listened to me today in the Congress. Some of those chickens would bow their head, shake their heads. They never quite said amen, but they tended uh, to produce. They produce eggs. (laughs) You you came to have a consciousness about what was going on on, about race in the country, and that started seeping into uh, your aspirations. What is it about your childhood? When can you pinpoint the exact moment uh, when you were struck by... uh, the inequities that you would end up spending your life fighting? As a young child, about seven, eight years old, we would go downtown, Troy, to the theater to see a movie. And all of us little light children had to go upstairs to the balcony. All of the little white children went downstairs to the first floor. 
I kept asking my mother, my father, my uncles and aunts, my grandparents why. And they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But in 1955, 15 years old, I heard of Rosa Parks. I, I heard of Martin Luther King Jr. heard him on the old radio. And 57, I met Rosa Parks. The next year, in 58, I met Martin Luther King Jr. And I was inspired. Yeah, I want to talk about that because you went off to Nashville uh, to study for the ministry. Uh, and you became more and more uh, involved in the social gospel and social ministry. And you decided you were going to come back to Troy State in uh, Alabama. And you were going to integrate that uh, that college, and you wrote to Martin Luther King, and he wrote back. And how did that happen? And and what what did you, and he sent you a ticket to come and see him, a bus ticket well, in Montgomery. Uh, you're right. Uh, he sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. Um, one of his close friends who had studied at the same college he had studied uh, in Atlanta, Mohouse College told him that I was in Nashville. So he got back in church with me and suggested when I was home for spring break to come and see him. So in March of 1958, by this time I'm 18 years old, I boarded a bus to travel from Troy to Montgomery. And a young lawyer by the name of Fred Gray, who was the lawyer for Rosa Parks, for Dr. King and the Montgomery Movement, met me at the Greyhound bus station and drove me to the First Baptist Church in downtown Montgomery, passed by the Reverend Rath Abernathy, a colleague of Dr. King, then a bus walker, and ushered me into the pastor's study. I saw Dr. King and Reverend Rath Abernathy standing behind a desk, and Dr. King said to me, are you the boy from Troy? Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis, but he still called me the boy from Troy. And he, we had a wonderful discussion. He said, if you want to attend Troy State, now called Troy University, we will help you. But we may have to file a suit against the state of Alabama, against Troy State. But you need to have a discussion with your mother and father. The home could be bombed or burned. They could lose the land. And I went back and had a discussion with my mother and father. They were so afraid that something could happen. So I continued to study in Nashville. What about you? Weren't you at all worried about what it would mean for you uh, to, to try and integrate that, that college? I no. mean, uh, there was, <laughs> the history of that was, was, was pretty intimidating. I, I felt strongly that somebody had to do something. Uh, I had been also inspired by the, the young people in Little Rock, the Little Rock Nine, in the, it just said to me, if people in Little Rock, Arkansas can stand up, then I can do something. If people in Montgomery, Montgomery is only 50 miles from where I grew up. I was deeply influenced by that. So I went back to Nashville. And you did do something. And, and, and I got involved. Started studying the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. Studying the way of peace, the way of love. And then we started these test sit-ins. In the fall of 1959. Sitting in at lunch counters that were, were segregated. Just sitting there, black and white college students and some high school students, sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, waiting to be served. Someone would come up and spit on us, pour hot water, hot coffee, pull us off the stools. And we were told over and over again, you know, if you continue to sit in, you're going to get arrested. Going to go to jail the next time. And you did. We did. I tell you, David, I wanted to look what people back then called clean. I wanted to look fresh of what people called sharp. Had very little money. So I went to a used men's store in downtown Nashville, and I bought a suit. A vest came with it. So I paid $5 for this suit. My first arrest on February the 27th. 1960, 89 students, black and whites, went to jail, became the first mass arrest in the sit-in movement. This didn't sit well with your folks, right? Oh, no, no. They thought I lost my mind. <laughs> they thought I was out of it. 
But you have written that you found it a liberating moment, that this was a transitional moment, a transformational moment in your life. Why? Just being arrested and, and taken off to jail, I hadn't committed any crime, I violated customs and tradition. I, I, I felt liberated. I felt free. You also sort of found a new family in your uh, student colleagues, uh, comrades in this uh, in this battle. And you you formed a, a group, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and you got involved then in a bigger and more dangerous uh, mission, which was the the Freedom Ride. Well, the the young people they became our family, a wonderful family. You know, to see people come together the same year that President Obama was born, 1961, black people and white people can be seated together on a Greyhound bus, leaving the nation's capital to travel through Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. We were on our way to New Orleans to test a decision of the United States Supreme Court. You, uh, and you became uh, the first uh, freedom Riders, the first group uh, organized and uh, to, to, to break these uh, barriers. And you had a dinner that you wrote about in your splendid biography uh, in which you talked about that uh, the night before you left for the ride. And you said, uh, as we passed around the bright silver containers of food. Someone joked that we should eat well and enjoy because this might be our last supper. Several in the group had actually written out wills in case they didn't come back from this trip. It was that serious. It was that real. As for me, just about all I owned and was packed in my suitcase. There was no need for me to make out a will. I had nothing to leave anyone. You were 21 years old, and you were contemplating death, as were obviously the other young people around you. Did you know what that meant? Did you, could you absorb uh, what you were about to go through? I studied the way of peace, the way of love, the philosophy of nonviolence. I, I, I thought that we could die. There was a possibility that we wouldn't return. But somebody, some group, had to be willing to give it all you, you, did, you, you studied nonviolence and peace and love, but you weren't greeted with nonviolence, uh, peace, and love. Uh, when you reached South Carolina, you had a, a confrontation. What, what happened there? Well, when we arrived in a little town called Rock Hills, South Carolina, about 30 or 35 miles from Charlotte, North Carolina, my seatmate was a young white gentleman. The two of us tried to enter a so-called white waiting room. We were attacked by members of the clan. This is what you would do, right? You would, uh, you would, we you would, would test go the and test the facilities in every stop. Right. We, we would go to the, the waiting room, or go to the restroom, um, go to the lunch counter, or go to the cafeteria. And people would, from time to time, attack you, beat you. We were left lying in a pool of blood. The local police officials came up. They wanted to know whether we wanted to press charges. We said no. We believe in peace. We believe in a way of love. No. And many years later, David, many years later, to be exact, a few days after President Obama was inaugurated, one of the guys that beat us came to my office in Washington. He was in his 70s with his son in his 40s and said, Mr. Lewis, um, I've been a member of the Klan. I beat you in your seatmate. He said, I want to apologize. Uh, will you forgive me? His son started crying. He started crying. I said, I forgive you. I accept apology. They hugged me. I hugged them back. I saw this gentleman four other times. He went out. He was moved by the, the election. 
And I think in a sense he got religion. And I think a lot of people did. So hearts can change. Hearts can change. And, and we shouldn't ever give up on anyone. I want to ask you about persistence in the face of, of, of threats and violence. You went uh, on a trip. Uh, you left the Freedom Ride and you went on a trip because you were uh, uh, pursuing a, a kind of missionary uh, slot to go to Africa or go to India. And you were called to Philadelphia for an interview. Uh, and uh, while you were in Philadelphia, your Greyhound bus continued on the Freedom Ride. And what happened? There was an attempt to burn the bus. The bus was burned between Atlanta and Birmingham with Freedom Riders on it. That was a Greyhound bus. And then the trailway bus, people were beaten and left bloody in Birmingham. I was supposed to meet the riders in Montgomery. They never made it to Montgomery. So I went back to Nashville and with others, we started organizing an effort to continue the ride. So I dropped the whole idea of going to Africa or to India and said I got to stay here and, and finish this job. And you continue, you, in Birmingham you met with violence in, uh, uh, and ultimately uh, you ended up in, in Montgomery, you met with violence, and you ended up in Jackson, Mississippi, which was sort of the heart of the resistance, the heart of uh, the segregation uh, frenzy uh, in the South. And, and what happened there? Well, in, in Jackson, uh, riders started coming from all across America, more than 400 people over a period of two or three months. You get to Jackson, you get arrested. If we fill the city jail, people continue to come. We fill the county jail. Then one day they made a decision to take us to the state penitentiary at Parchment. Parchment at that time was one of the worst prisons in America. And I will never forget it. When they segregated us, the white men from the black men, the white women from the black women. But when they decided to take us to parchment, they put us all together. And when we got to parchment, they segregated us again. And they said, saying your damn songs, your freedom songs now, we have niggers here. They will eat you. They will beat you. And they led us into a hallway. And they had guns and drew the guns on us. And order us to take off all of our clothing. Then they led us in twos to take a shower. And while we were taking our showers, they had guns drawn. And if you had a beard, a mustache, any facial hair, you had to cut it off. And in an hour or so, they brought us an undershirt, a T-shirt, I guess you'll call it, and a pair of Mississippi State Penitentiary shorts. And we all stayed in uh, 40 and 44 days to get out to appeal our cases. Never coming out of the cell? Never coming out of the cell. For, to exercise anything. Did you ever wonder whether you're going to get out of those cells anytime soon? Well, we, you, in, in a movement, you have to be hopeful. You have to be optimistic that it's all going to work out. It's going to be okay. But the Freedom Ride just drew people from all across America in support of this effort. And President Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General, intervened and got the Interstate Commerce Commission to issue an order. Yeah, you, the, you didn't start off as a, uh, as a believer in the Kennedys particularly. Uh, do you think they changed or did you change? I, I believe President Kennedy and, and Robert Kennedy and people within the administration changed. There was individuals there. There was one guy, one man I will never forget. He had been in the Eisenhower's administration. His name was John Doerr. He was a Republican for Wisconsin. He was tall, but he was committed and dedicated that he, even when we were beaten in Montgomery, he wanted to interview us and told us not to talk to the local authority, 
to the FBI and to the lawyer from the Department of Justice. He was there every inch of the way. And he helped change and move President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Burt Marshall along the way. And their reaction was a validation of what you were doing. You helped educate them by submitting yourself to beatings, to arrests, uh, to this, this constant, constant siege. Well, on one occasion, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who I admired a great deal, said, in effect, he said, John, I now understand. The young people have taught me. You went to Washington, uh, and uh, you ultimately met with uh, President Kennedy, but you were the youngest person included in that famous March on Washington, the, uh, the uh, event at the Lincoln Memorial at which Martin Luther King made his uh, dramatic uh, speech. But your speech was quite controversial. In fact, while the program was beginning, you as a 23-year-old were standing behind the Lincoln statue with the leaders of the civil rights movement uh, telling you that you had to change, change your speech. Well, I didn't like the idea of a speech that we had prepared uh, to be forced to change my speech, to be encouraged to change the speech. And I remember A. Philip Randolph, the dean of black leadership, saying, John, we come this far. Can we stay together? Uh, can you change this, change that? And I remember Dr. King saying to me on one occasion, John, that doesn't sound like you. And I couldn't say no to A. Philip Randolph. I couldn't say no to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we made the changes. But it's interesting. You were this young guy, the 23-year-old in, the, in, in a group of elders, and you were really representing students who had a, a, a different orientation, uh, less patience uh, than some of the others. Uh, here's the speech. As I think this is the unedited speech. Uh, this is a piece of it. We're now involved in a social revolution. This nation is still a place of cheap political leaders who build their careers on immoral compromises and ally themselves with open forms of political, economic, and social exploitation. What political leader here can stand up and say, my party is the party of principles? The party of Kennedy is also the party of Eastland. The party of Javits is also the party of Goldwater, so moderates and uh, racial uh, conservatives. Where is our party? This strikes me as a speech that a Black Lives Matter leader could give today uh, and, and maybe looking toward you and other uh, other members of the political establishment. Well, I, I think we were a little ahead of our time, really. Uh, but we were venting some of the frustration and this sense of discontent on the part of so many people. To see so many people arrested and jailed and beaten and seemed like Washington were looking the other way. But on the day of the march, on the day of the march, when the march was all over, President Kennedy invited us down to the White House, and he stood in the door of the Oval Office, beaming like a proud father. And he kept saying, you did a good job, you did a good job. And when he got to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said, you did a good job, and you had a dream. He, uh, he, he wasn't crazy about the idea of the rally in the first place. No, not at all, not uh, at all. Why? Well, he thought there would be unbelievable um, violence and disorder. And he said we would never get a civil rights bill through the Congress if we have uh, a lot of violence. And they were prepared you know, to call out whatever it took. That, that was one of, one of the objections that uh, some of the others had to your speech was that you called Kennedy out uh, specifically, it appeared, cheap politicians and so on. Um, looking back, uh, are you happy you <laughs> excised that from, from your draft? Well, I, I am. I admired President Kennedy. I admired him. I admired uh, the Attorney General. It's unbelievable uh, to me, by the way, that 23 years old, and you're in the Oval Office as a leader of a movement uh, with the President of the United States, 15 years after you were preaching to chickens. Yeah. Uh, did it ever occur to you how extraordinary that was? No, and I, I really, I, I, I never really thought about it, that you can preach to chickens uh, at one period in your life, and just a few years later, uh, you preach to more than 250,000 people into a whole nation. I, I never really thought about it, but it's something to think about. 
as you walk around this uh, center and you look at these photographs uh, and you see some of the film clips, uh, what's very, very clear is the role the news media played in uh, bringing your stories uh, to the American public and really uh, shocking the conscience of uh, the American people. That was uh, your intent, I think, in some of the actions that you staged. Could the civil rights movement have succeeded without that coverage, without, without journalism? Without journalism. And without with, television. With, without television, without brave and courageous cameramen, reporters. It was very, very dangerous, David. It was very dangerous to be a reporter, to have a pencil and a pad, or to be a photographer. When, when members of the Klan, when people, they just didn't beat on us. They tried to destroy the record, whether it was in Atlanta or in Mississippi or in Alabama during the Freedom Rides. Uh, when we got off of that bus in Montgomery in May of 1961, they fresh beat the reporters. And you saw all these men, mostly men, very few women reporters back then, just bloody, and then they turn on us. I think one of the most momentous uh, events in the civil rights movement was when ABC uh, cut into their screening of Judgment in Nuremberg, which was a, a major new film at the time, ironically about Nazi war crimes, to do 15 minutes uh, of film from Bloody Sunday, uh, chronicling the attack on you and the people you were uh, marching with. Uh, that, as much as anything, probably led to the expediting of the Voting Rights Act. Well, when the American people saw that film footage, they didn't like it. They, they, they started speaking up. They started marching all across America. And in a matter of a few days, there was demonstration in more than 80 cities, almost on every major college and university campus at the White House, at the Department of Justice. They were demanding that President Johnson act, that the Congress act. And because of the press, and I said over and over again, without the media, without the press, the civil rights movement would have been like a bird without wings. This is a hot topic right now. And you know, the media is not trading very high. The news media, uh, in, in, in the public estimation, the president obviously has... Uh, a lot of criticism. Uh, you must have been irritated by the media uh, from time to time, unless. You, uh, but you sound uh, committed to the to the uh, role of a, of an aggressive news media. I've always believed in a, in a in a free press, an open press. Uh, maybe didn't like some of the things that some of the southern papers printed in Alabama, in Mississippi, or some parts of Georgia. But we had in, in, in communities like Atlanta. In, in Nashville, Tennessee, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and even places in Mississippi where there were brave and courageous reporters. And sometimes their places were bombed also. They just didn't bomb the synagogues and the churches, but they bombed and burned the office of reporters. It, it, it was not easy. It was not simple. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. The Mississippi Freedom Summer. Uh, you write in your book that you were inviting college students down from the north, mostly white students, not exclusively. And one of the reasons was that you felt, and the leaders of the movement felt, that if if young white people were threatened in the way that uh, you had been threatened and others had been threatened, that it would, uh, it would shock the nation. It would get more attention. And even before the Mississippi Freedom Summer started, which was an organizing campaign in Mississippi, you lost uh, three young men. Uh, two of them were uh, from the North, uh, white. Uh, what impact did that have on history? Well, that was an unbelievable, dark moment in the history of the struggle for civil rights. Uh, we wanted, we wanted somehow, in some way, for the nation to see Mississippi, 
to see the South. So by bringing these young people to Mississippi, to the heart of the Deep South, we help educate and sensitize people. I think it had a turning point, uh, helped move the movement many steps forward. Did you ever say to yourself, what have we done? What have we done in jeopardizing these young people? Or did you just feel like they understood what they were getting into and they were taking the same risks that you were taking? Well, I, I felt for many years, and I still feel now, uh, that, you know, is what happened is the blood on our hands to see these young people who lost their lives. And there's so many other people, uh, older people. People gave everything they had. But I think all of the young people understood the rest. Uh, this scene uh, across the Edmund uh, Pettus Bridge, um, this was the impetus for the voting, the voting Rights Act. But your skull was cracked. Uh, you, were, you were gassed. Um, you n- nearly gave your life uh, for, uh, for this. Um, at what point do you and others say, and you said this is where there was a split in the civil rights movement, uh, nonviolence has its limits, that violence uh, invites uh, defensive violence? Well, I, I never, through, all, through it all, the 40 arrests during that period, the beatings, I never, ever gave up on the idea of being committed to the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. You, you, you have to accept it as a way of life, as a way of living. If, if you're going to create the beloved community, uh, if we're going to accept what A. Philip Randolph stated over and over again, maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this land in different ships, but we all are in the same boat now. And Dr. King put it another way. We got to learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we're going to perish as fools. 1968 is a year that I remember as a young man growing up as one of the most disturbing, momentous, catastrophic years in our history. When all this violence began to, it felt like it was overwhelming the country. You were right in the middle of a lot of that history. Uh, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated in 1963. You were now working for Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general who came uh, to your assistance uh, when you were a young uh, organizer in the South. Uh, what drew you to Bobby Kennedy? Well, I, I, I really admired him. I admired the energy and the sense of uh, hope uh, that we can do it. We could remake America. Uh, he inspired me. You know what's striking about him, as I recall, and he was a hero of mine, he had an extraordinary ability to reach across class lines, to reach across uh, racial lines that I, I, I really have not seen since. What was it about him that allowed him to go into poor white communities, uh, poor black communities, working class uh, uh, ethnic white communities uh, in, in the urban areas and, and come away with people feeling like he was their advocate. I think we all, we, we all saw something in him that was real, that he had this, the ability, the capacity to identify with people, whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, Native American. Um, it, it, was, it was his whole being that he cared uh, I think his uh, brother's assassination had something to do with Well, him. I think it changed him, made him a different person, and drove him to say to himself, yeah, I'm going to use my time to make things better. It's interesting, you were surrounded by martyrs uh, and the survivors of martyrs, uh, and his brother, uh, in a sense, was as well. Um, so uh, was that a, a come? Because I remember very clearly the night on April 4th of uh, 1968 when Martin Luther King was killed in, in Memphis. You were with Robert Kennedy in Indianapolis. You were organizing for him 
in the Indiana primary. I know the local authorities didn't want him to speak. They were worried uh, about uh, violence there, and they were worried about protecting his safety. But you urged him to come. Well, I, I just felt that he had a, uh, an obligation, not just an obligation, but it was the right thing for him to do to come and identify with the people. I had heard that Dr. King had been shot, but I didn't know that he had died. And it was Robert Kennedy that made the announcement. So when he made the announcement on that stage was the first time that you knew that Dr. King King had died? Right. Mm -hmm. How did that that strike you as as formative as Dr. King was in your life? It it made me very sad, and uh, I cried. Um, but a lot of us in that audience, black and white, we cried. And it was Bobby Kennedy who suggested that I, along with one of his staffers, return to Atlanta to help in the preparation for the funeral. Um, but I, I, He I, cried I, as well. He, he cried, yeah. We went he, back to his hotel room, and we met, and we talked. And uh, I remember when he came to Atlanta uh, for the funeral, that it was my responsibility the night before to escort him and other members of the Kennedy family through the Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, to view Dr. King's body. And, and Bobby Kennedy, the day of the funeral, was one of the few white politicians that walked all the way uh, through the streets of Atlanta from that church uh, to the Morehouse College campus with hundreds and thousands of people without anyone just saying a word, just, just silent. A few months later, you were with him in Los Angeles, and you were organizing the African-American community of Los Angeles for the all-important California primary uh, with Cesar Chavez, who was working the Hispanic precincts. I, 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 remember, precinct. I remember so Great well. labor organizer. Well, we teamed up from time to time, and went into some of the wealthy white neighborhoods in Los Angeles, uh, trying to convince people to vote for Bobby rather than for Humphrey or McCarthy. And um, somehow you knew that he was going to carry the state of California, and he did. You were with him right before he went out to make his victory speech that night. What did he say to you? Well, he sort of joked with me, and he said, John, you let me down today. more Mexican-American turn out to vote than Negroes. And uh, he said, I'm going down uh, to speak, and you wait here. And I waited in, uh, in the suite with his sister, Jean Kennedy uh, Smith, and uh, Jack Newfield of the Village Boys, mm-hmm. and Teddy Whites and several other, Charles Evers, Mega Evers' brother. Medgar Evers, the slain NAACP leader from Mississippi. Right. And... It was a sad evening. What, how do you process this? To, you, you said after Dr. King died that you'd sort of transferred all of your energy and loyalty uh, to Bobby Kennedy. Uh, how do you process that loss? It's one thing, extraordinary to take the beating that, beatings that you took over time, but what about the sense of loss of these men who were essentially... Um, mentors of yours? Well, people, these individuals, people that I admire and, and love, and I felt they were like the, the hope for the future of America, maybe the planet. And I think something died in all of us uh, when Bobby Kennedy was shot. Uh, we had to stay in the hotel for a while. My hotel was a a little distance away. I just wanted to leave, wanted to leave L.A. I just wanted to get back to Georgia. And so the next morning I got on a flight to fly uh, back to Atlanta. And as we crossed the hills and mountains, you can see the the snow. I think I cried all the way. Uh, How how would history, Congressman, how would history have been different if, if Bobby, you know, assassins, bullets can change the course of history. Did, did the assassin's bullet that killed Robert Kennedy change the course of history? Oh, I, I, I truly believe that the assassin bullet 
did change the course of history. I think something died in all of us. Something died in America. It was more than the death of a, of a political leader, but a, a certain spirit died. And those of us who lived through that period, it, it's very hard, very difficult to recover from, from what happened. We would have ended the war in Vietnam much earlier, I think. And I believe, I truly believe that Robert Kennedy would have been elected president of the United States of America. And the young people in this country, young people around the world, would be so different. It would have been another unbelievable generation of young leaders emerging. Indianapolis was the only city that didn't burn major city the night that Martin Luther King was uh, assassinated. Uh, and Bobby Kennedy and his incredibly moving speech and, and plea to the crowd was, uh, was given credit for that. Uh, but violence did erupt all over the country and had been sporadically for years. It seemed as if the nonviolent movement that you began uh, with at the beginning of the uh, decade really faded into uh, something else uh, by the end of the decade. Was there uh, a point at which uh, the movement split, diverged, uh, nonviolence lost its uh, luster? I, I think something died. Part of the movement died with Martin Luther King Jr. And you have not had a leader that preached the way of peace, the way of love. Uh, the doctrine of nonviolence, the way Dr. King was able to do and inspire people. But you've carried on for uh, all these years. Uh, you've been in tough political battles. Uh, you had all this loss at a very early age and all of these extraordinarily difficult uh, experiences. And you're in a very tough political environment uh, right now, and yet, and yet you're unshaken in your faith. You're unshaken in your belief in our ability to overcome our differences? Well, my philosophy is very simple, that if you believe in something, stand up for it, speak up, and speak out. And, and you never give up. You get knocked down, but you don't give up. You keep standing up. You continue to believe that somehow, in some way, we will prevail, we will have a great victory. And it's not just a victory for individuals, but it's a victory for all humanity. You have to believe that. And I, and I truly believe that. I, I think that's what uh, Dr. King and Gandhi and many others instill in, in all human. You know, I have not been back to Indiana, Indianapolis. I've been to other parts since that evening, or April 4th. I have not been back to that spot. Purposely. Yeah, but I'm going back there next year. It'll be the 50th, 50th anniversary. anniversary. I'm going back there and I'm going to Memphis the same day. Um, Why? It's, it's, you have to go back. You have to go back and to remember what happened and how it happened. So this room encompasses a lot of those early battles that you fought that kind of defined your life. Here's a replica of a Freedom Ride bus like the ones uh, that you rode. How many times were you arrested? Well, during the 60s, I was arrested 40 times. Uh, the sit-ins, the Freedom Ride, uh, standing in at theaters. One of the things about the Freedom Rides is that uh, some of the elders of the Civil Rights Movement did not want you to continue. They no. wanted you, the students to stop. Uh, how, did, how did that get resolved? Well, we made a decision that uh, we uh, couldn't stop. Uh, we couldn't let the opposition have a victory. Uh, we were determined to see that the um, bus stations and buses and waiting rooms were desegregated all across the South. How many months uh, did it take for you to prevail? Um, it took from May um, 1961 and November 1st, 1961. And how did you feel when, uh, when the bus companies gave in, when the local communities 
uh, gave in. It was, it was a great feeling. It was a great victory for the movement. And the movement need victories. Dr. King was said from time to time, give us some victories. Uh, you keep people together. You keep building. Um, he uh, was not always in favor with some of your young colleagues and uh, comrades in, in, in peace, I guess, not in arms. Uh, why? Well, uh, Dr. King thought from time to time that some of us wanted to do things that was not in keeping with uh, his philosophy, his beliefs. Uh, he refused to go on the Freedom Ride because he had a case pending against him. Uh, he would be... Uh, would have violated his parole? His parole. And uh, I, I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, you let people participate to the point that they feel free to participate. You don't try to force people to participate. But he was the leader of the civil rights movement. Did, did some of your uh, young uh, comrades feel that he was uh, shirking his responsibility by not risking himself well, along with you? Well, some people felt that, and they started referring to him as, as the Lord. Uh, but uh, but not I, in a positive way. Not in a very positive way. But I, I never got in a, um, a real disagreement with Dr. King. He was my my friend and uh, just my leader. If it hadn't been for him, I don't know what would have happened to me. Let me let me ask you. This place is extraordinary. You can't go through here without being moved, moved by the sacrifices that you made and others made, and moved by what America was then and now with all the problems uh, that we have. You're responsible uh, for this place, and you, you're responsible for, in many ways, the Museum of African American History in Washington. What do you hope uh, people will draw from uh, these places? What lessons do you want young people when you've written graphic novels about the movement, what are you hoping to impart? Well, it is my hope that young people yet to be born would understand that generation before them gave everything they had to make our country and make our world a better place for all humankind. Do you, does it bother you that you, uh, you gave so much of yourself physically, uh, risked your life uh, for voting rights, and, and there's, there are relatively low voter turnouts, uh, particularly among younger uh, voters and in these minority uh, community. Yeah, it, it's sad. It, uh, I feel like saying, you know, your mothers and your fathers, your grandparents gave their very life, they gave their blood uh, to bring us to where we are today and that you have a moral obligation to get up and go out there and vote in every election. Uh, that the vote is precious. It is powerful. It is the most powerful nonviolent instrument or tool that we have in a democratic society, and we must use it. Your career as an organizer and a protester and an advocate, civil rights advocate, began at the lunch counters uh, in Nashville, as we discussed. This is a replica of one of those lunch counters, and through those earphones is a, um, a, a depiction of the scene that you faced as you sat there. I want to ask you to sit down, put those headphones on, and then let's talk when you're, when oh, you're done. Okay. Get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. If you don't get up, boy, I'm going to kill you. Right in front of everybody. I'm going to take this fork. I'm going to jam it right into your neck. <laughs> oh, he's still ugly, though. Hey, hey ain't he ugly? You think he's something? He ain't nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? That's going to be you, boy. That's going to be you, boy. If you don't leave now. 
How painful is it to to hear those scenes? So real. It is real. Exactly what happened. Do you uh, do you have those those experiences still vivid in your memory? Fifty-seven years later, fifty-six years later. Yes. Uh, yes. The, if, just listening to that, it is. Um, it's really hard to fathom how one sits there and experiences the sort of, not just the violence, but the degradation. Yeah. Uh, but people had the ability uh, to do it day in and day out, to sit and take it and, and just look straight ahead. Uh, someone would come up and spit on you, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you, pull you off the stool, then you get arrested and taken to jail. It takes a lot of uh, both discipline and dignity to be able to, uh, to be able to do that, but it it led to another victory. Yeah. Yeah. You were able, in a matter of months, to desegregate the lunch counters of Nashville. Yeah. When Nashville became the first major city in the South to desegregate most of its lunch counters and restaurants, because people had the capacity to sit on those stools. You were reconciled with dying. That this was a real possibility. Yeah, oh yes, it was. Yeah, you prepare for it. Mm-hmm. How does a twenty-one-year-old prepare for that? Well, you, you realize that other people have given everything they had, and um, what is so special about you? Uh, you have a role to play, and just play it. No one want to die. No one want to. You want to live. Wanna, as Dr. King was there, he said on many occasions, like to be around for a long time. But there come a time when you have to stand up for something and speak up. And in the process, you may get hurt. Uh, you may lose your life. It sounds like you and all those who you rode with and marched with and were arrested with and uh, were beaten with, uh, found meaning in what they were doing beyond themselves, found meaning in each other. Yeah, I I think uh, people who have studied um, the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence, studied the teaching of uh, uh, the great teacher, studied the teaching of Gandhi and Thoreau and others, uh, came to that place did your parents ever come to terms with what you were doing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When the Voting Rights Act was passed, they could get registered and vote for the first time, yes. And my mother became a crusader for everybody getting registered to vote. And she lived to see me go to Congress. She must have been awfully proud. Yes. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. In terms of where we are today, you've, uh, you've been pretty harsh in your criticism of the President of the United States. You, at times, compared him to George Wallace, who was the governor who presided over those state troopers who attacked you on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That's pretty tough criticism. Well, you know, I, I think the person we have in Washington today is uncaring, know very, very little about the struggle and the history of the civil rights movement. That black and white people died. They gave their lives. I think about Andy Goodman, Mika Scherner, James Shaney. I think about Viola Luzzo, this white housewife who came from Detroit, who was shot, murdered, on a highway between Selma and Montgomery by the Klan. And countless individuals just gave everything they had. But, but George Wallace, I mean, that's, that's, what about the president 
uh, and his actions suggest to you that he is in that tradition, the tradition of uh, a, a famed, notorious segregationist. Well, I, I think this president right now is asking uh, for the records, uh, the voter registration records uh, of people all over America. Uh, that is a form of intimidation. That's a form of harassment. This is his voter integrity, uh, integrity commission, and, and, vice president and, and, and leader. And some of the people that make up this commission, they have a history, a long history of making it harder and difficult for people to participate in the democratic process. We come too far. This president should be leading us into the future, not taking us backward. You, uh, you essentially boycotted uh, the inauguration of the president. I was actually critical of you, not because of him so much as the institution of the presidency, and you've heard uh, these arguments. Why did you stay away? Well, I I felt like when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation uh, not to be identified with it, not to associate yourself with it. It's in keeping with the philosophy and the, dif- and, and the discipline of nonviolence uh, to not cooperate, not to be a part of it, not to add to it. And so more than 65 of my colleagues followed me in, in Stanaway. We felt because, like, of the elect- because of the way well, uh, we, the election we, unfolded. We've, we felt, and I deeply felt, and I think history will bear me out, that uh, this election was not a clean and fair election. Uh, I believe to this day uh, that the Russians played a major role in helping this man get elected and harming the campaign of Hillary Clinton. A major role or a decisive role? I I think they played a decisive role. And one day, I I think one day we will know the truth. And you... You, you've, you've hinted at this before, but you consider him a legitimate president? Well, I said at the time, I did not consider him a legitimate president. I think the election was tainted. Um, even though, so despite the fact that he got the requisite number of electoral votes, you, he often uses the word rigged. You think the election was rigged in his favor? Oh, I, I would I truly believe to this day that this election was rigged in his favor. You know, you had a march. Uh, every year you commemorate the march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, a couple of years ago on the 50th anniversary, one of the marchers was Jeff Sessions, who is now the Attorney General of the United States. You were vehemently opposed to his nomination as Attorney General. Why and how do you think he's doing now seven months in? Well, I know his record. I know his history. He has a very long history of being on the other side and not on the right side. Uh, I don't think he's doing too well. And are there things that the Justice Department, relative to civil rights, relative to voting rights, I know they withdrew from uh, a uh, voting rights uh, suit in Texas. Uh, Are there things that the Justice Department is doing that concerns you? I I think this Department of Justice has a deaf uh, ear and has withdrawn from the participation in the process of looking out for people, uh, not moving people forward and standing still. Uh, During the administration of President Barack Obama, we had a caring and active Department of Justice. And you mentioned Barack Obama. He was another marcher at that 50th anniversary. You locked arms with him, the first African-American President, uh, first of all, what did that mean to you? What did his election mean to you? Well, the, the day of the evening when he was elected, I cried. And some reporters asked me why I was crying so much. I said it was tears, happiness, tears of joy. And I said people are crying all over America. People are crying in other parts of the world. And those that are not with us today are crying. And they said, what are you going to do when he's inaugurated? So if I have any tears left, I'm going to cry some more. And that's exactly what I did. I cried for, for Dr. King, for Robert Kennedy, President Kennedy, for the three civil rights workers, 
for those hundreds and thousands of people that went to jail who never, ever lived to cast a vote. I cried for them. I cried for my great-grandparents and for my own mother and my own father. Yet at the end of those eight years, you know, polls were taken and people said they thought race relations were getting worse uh, in the country. Why is that? I don't understand why people would say that or, or feel that. I think the election and the presidency of President Barack Obama injected something very meaningful into the very vein of our country. Gave people hope. Someone just said to me a few days ago, said, oh, I wish he could have been elected for a third term. Now, do you, do you think uh, the opposition to him was... Uh, racially motivated to some degree? I think there were individuals, organizations that fanned the flame of racism because of the color of this man. Was was the president's uh, uh, campaign around the uh, legitimacy of Barack Obama's citizenship a part of that? Oh, I, I think that have created that atmosphere, that climate, uh, that he was not one of us that he came from someplace else. You know, you speak so movingly of your, uh, uh, of your affection for him and for uh, the meaning of his election. I know you struggled during the primary campaign in 2007, at first endorsing Hillary Clinton and then ultimately Barack Obama. Did you not believe that an African-American could get elected president of the United States? I thought it was possible. Uh, and I became convinced that this one man could get elected and become president of the United States. And I was very proud uh, to join his team and, and campaign on, on his behalf. You're a loyal guy. Was that a difficult thing to switch from one candidate to another? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's very difficult. It was hard. I had known the Clinton for many, many years. And, uh, but I had to make a decision. I, I had what I call an executive session with myself. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, self, uh, listen. And, well, that's an expeditious way to get to a conclusion, having an executive session with yourself. Another guy who walked with you arm in arm uh, in Selma a couple of years ago was President George W. Bush. You actually boycotted his uh, inauguration as well, and yet you came to work with him on a project that you'd been involved in from the beginning, which is to create an African-American Museum of History in Washington, in the Smithsonian Institute, which is now a reality. How did that relationship develop, and could you see that happening with this president? Well, I got to know President George W. Bush, and he, I think he admired what we did or tried to do during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I got to know his father. Uh, matter of fact, I gave him a book uh, uh, to read about the movement. And he sent me a note. And the son, George W. Bush, I will see him from time to time. Uh, he would invite us down to the White House, and uh, we would talk. Uh, he embraced the building of an African-American museum on the mall. And his wife did. And they became partners in helping us get it there. So when the legislation was passed, it took me more than 15 years to get yeah. it through the Congress. But it was passed. He signed it into law. And during the open, he came and spoke. And Mrs. Bush came and spoke also. He, it was a, a, something becoming real for him and for his family. Could you, in today's environment have passed that legislation through Congress? Could you have gotten that museum? Oh, I think today it would have been oh, almost impossible. So how do we reclaim that? You're, you're someone who's constantly spoken about reconciliation. It's been a big part of your, uh, of your uh, commitment from the very, very beginning. Well, we can, how, do, how do you break that? Well, we can never give up, we can never give, give up on the possibility of being reconciled bringing people together, creating what Dr. King and many of us called the beloved community, uh, 
So we must do what we can to redeem people, redeem the soul of America, to understand that we're one people, we're one family, we all live in the same house, not just American house, but the world house. So if uh, the next time you have one of your uh, commemorations in Selma, would you invite the president to... You said he doesn't have an understanding of the history of civil rights. Would you invite him to come I, to Selma? I would suggest to him uh, to come and walk in our shoes. Come and, and, and learn something. Congressman, thank you uh, for sharing your stories, and thank you for all the sacrifices you've made uh, for this country. It's well, thank you, David. Great, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.